You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2 verse 11. Titus 2.11, if you're reading from the Pew Bible, you can find Titus 2.11 on page 938 in the Pew Bible. We're already nearing the end of our study in Titus, but we find ourselves right in the heart of Paul's instructions to the younger minister, Titus. By now, we've learned a little bit about Titus's situation there on the island of Crete, Paul left him there to continue the work of the ministry and had the specific command to go from town to town and appoint elders or pastors in each church on the island. As he's doing that, he's also meant to be teaching, to be instructing in sound doctrine, helping people understand that this is how you are to live as a follower of Christ. The problem is that Crete is not the most moral, upstanding place. The Cretan people had a well-established reputation for immorality, for dishonesty, for laziness that they had established over the course of centuries. Yet Titus is called to bring order to the churches there and instruct the Christians to live according to sound doctrine. You can imagine that that was an uphill battle. Consider the passage we read last week. Imagine Titus speaking in a Cretan church and telling the older men to be dignified and steadfast, telling the older women to be reverent and teachers of good, telling the young women to be pure and submissive, telling the young men to be self-controlled. Imagine him giving those instructions and then someone raising their hand and saying, why? Why, why do we have to do that? Why can't I keep living the way I'm, I have my entire life? Why can't I live the way that everyone else in, in the Cretan culture does? Uh, after all, to change, to live differently is, is going to really mess up my life. It, it might cost me some stuff. It will certainly affect my social status. I might have to stop doing things that I like to do. It might take some real energy and effort. It will surely be inconvenient So why? What's the motivation for this change in living? That's a fair question. And unlike a parent with a small child saying, because I said so, isn't going to cut it. That's not a good enough answer here. Titus can't respond with, well, just because it's the right thing to do or or because it's, it's better to be a moral person. There needs to be a solid reason for this life change. There has to be a theological basis for righteous living and good works. And that's exactly what Paul is going to give us today in verses 11 through 14. He's going to give Titus the theological reason and motivation for living according to sound doctrine. And we see that it all starts with grace. Look at that first phrase of verse 1. For the grace of God has appeared. The word grace is one of the most important words in the New Testament, certainly in Paul's writings. If you were to take that word out, it would be really hard to understand anything that Paul wrote to us. Paul loves to talk about the grace of God. It's a multifaceted word in the New Testament. There's different angles to the word grace. For example, in some places, grace is 
best understood to be uh, God's undeserved favor. Like Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. In those verses, it's describing how God has saved us and justified us completely through his undeserved favor, through his grace. In other places, grace can be understood to refer to the power for godly living. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 12.9, where Paul recounts what God told him, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. In both of those places, grace is empowerment from God to live for him. Now, when we come to this phrase in Titus 2.11, it's somewhat related to that, but really we see another angle to the word grace. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is the grace of God personified. This is the grace of God showing up in a visible, tangible way. So we're right to understand this to refer to the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Paul will use a similar phrase in Titus 3, 4, saying, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So when Jesus came to earth, it was as if the goodness, the loving kindness, the grace of God put on flesh. It's also worth noting that this is not when God's grace started. Rather, it's when it appeared. Remember what Paul told us in 2 Timothy 1, 9, Speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So according to Paul, God gave us purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before anything was created, before anything else existed, God already had this amazing grace stored up for you in Christ Jesus. And now it has appeared. Jesus has appeared, the Son of God in the flesh, as John says, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the truth is that the only way to know God's grace is to first know God's Son. Jesus is the appearing of the grace of God in the flesh. So from the start, Paul's basis for right living, for godly living, is founded on the first coming of Jesus, the appearing of the grace of God in the person of Jesus. And when the grace of God appeared, it appeared, it came to do work. It didn't appear just to be something nice to look at or to marvel at. There are two things he says grace does. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So first, grace brings salvation for all people. There could be no salvation, no saving grace to be found if Jesus had not come. If Jesus did not come, we would still be enslaved to sin. We'd still be buried under the weight of condemnation for our wickedness. We would still be on the path to destruction with no one to rescue us. 
but when the grace of God appeared. When Jesus came in the flesh, he brought salvation with him. As John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now it says, bringing salvation for all people. What does it mean by for all people? Well, we know it can't mean that everyone's automatically saved or everyone ends up in heaven. We know that salvation comes only to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So we can best understand this to mean that it brings the offer of salvation to all people. And that's a glorious truth. The, the truth that the gospel is proclaimed to all people, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all people. There's no person or group of people or demographic that the gospel is not true for. Jesus came offering living water to anyone who would receive it. He came offering the bread of life to anyone who would receive it. There are no caveats to salvation other than repentance and faith in Christ. So grace brings the offer of salvation. Then second, grace trains us. This isn't so much athletic training as it is instruction and education, but with a tone of serious discipline and work. And it trains us to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So notice the grace of God does not stop at salvation. Lots of times we like to embrace God's grace in terms of it saving us and regenerating us. And then we're kind of like, thanks for the grace. Now I'm going to get back to living my life. I'll see you in heaven, God. That's sometimes how we look at it. But the work of God's grace in the presence of Christ in your life does not stop at regeneration God's grace has a training, disciplining, educating effect that should be evident in your life. You could call this sanctification. God's grace is wanting to shape us and form us into the image of Christ. It's wanting to rearrange our priorities and reorient our passions towards the things of God. Paul expresses this here in verse 12 with a negative and a positive which is his typical fashion. First, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, it tells us to say no to sinful desires. It trains us for that. That's a big statement for Titus there in Crete. The Cretans are known for a culture of immorality. They probably say no to nothing. Yet Titus is to teach them that God's grace trains them and empowers them to say no to those old ways of living. I like the ESV's use of the word renounce because it implies that at one point we did live in ungodliness. At one point we did have these worldly passions, but now things must change because we're a follower of Christ. Our old self was put to death and buried with Christ. We're raised to walk in a new way of life. And God's grace gives us the power to renounce, to, to deny, and to turn away from those actions, those habits, those uh, patterns and appetites that once characterized us. And sometimes it is as simple as just saying no. Many of you can probably recall Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign from the 1980s. When asked by a student what she should do if someone offered her drugs, the first lady said, just say no. It's the same with ungodliness and worldly passions. 
renouncing it is as simple as just saying no. Unfortunately for the Christian, we don't have to rely on just sheer willpower to say no. Instead, we have the grace of God that has appeared and is training us and empowering us to say no. And it not only trains us to say no to ungodliness, it also trains us to say yes to godliness. The second half of the verse says, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, God's grace changes us completely. It's not just stopping doing wrong things. It's also starting to do right things, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness more and more each day. And this is an ongoing process. This is a daily process. When you came to Christ, there may have been habits and things you did that you knew needed to stop there and then. You renounced them right away. But I bet over the years since you've been saved, you've probably encountered a few more sins or worldly passions that you needed to renounce along the way. That's because sanctification is an ongoing process. And the things you, you needed to renounce may change from season to season. As you move from one stage of life to another, there may be new temptations that you never struggled with before that suddenly flare up. And through the grace of God, you need to say no. There may be other worldly desires that try to creep into your life depending on life circumstances that you need to say no to. And each time you do it, you, it, you build discipline, you build training. Each time you say, no, I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to think that way. I'm going to live this way and think this way. That is a win for your soul. It fortifies your faith. There's also something else I hope you see in these verses. You need to notice the order in which these things occur. What happens first? Well, first, the grace of God appears, bringing salvation. Then it trains us for godliness. So first, grace and salvation, then good works. It's never good works first, and then God gives us his grace. For some reason, there seems to be a default in the human heart where we think we have to earn God's grace. I guess it makes sense when most everything else in life is, is usually earned, especially in a capitalist society. You can get good things if you're willing to put in the effort, in the hard work to earning them. And oftentimes we're tempted to think that that's how we operate with God. We have to clean ourselves up first before we can come to him, or we have to start living a certain way first, and then he shows us his grace. But that's getting everything backwards, and you'll find it to be a frustrating, futile endeavor. We see from these verses that it's first God pouring out his grace through the person of Jesus Christ, and then it's still that grace from him that trains us and empowers us to do good works and to live godly lives. It's, it's never something we achieve and accomplish on our own. Instead, it's always Jesus working through us to produce that kind of life. And as a believer who wants to honor and glorify God, yet still feels that tension of the flesh, I find that incredibly encouraging to know that Jesus is actively working in me and through me to produce the godly life he requires of me. And it's empowered by the appearing of God's grace, that first coming of Jesus Christ that brought salvation 
to all. So it's Jesus' first coming that empowers this godly living. But it's Jesus' second coming that motivates this godly living. Look at verse 13. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see how Jesus is the central figure of this entire passage. It's his first appearing that brings salvation and the grace therein empowers us for godly living. And it's the hope of his second appearing that has yet to occur that motivates that godly living. You see, Jesus is both the push and the pull towards godliness. It's him on both ends. His first coming propels us towards godliness, and his second coming pulls us towards godliness. And his second coming is the motivating factor because, as Paul calls it, it is our blessed hope. We're seeking godliness in this present age because of the blessed hope we have in the age to come. And this present age is defined by the two comings of Christ. John Piper describes it this way, saying, This is where all Christians live, between the first and second appearing of Christ, between what he has done for us and what he will do for us, between what he has become for us and what he will fully become for us, between the already and the not yet. That's where Christians exist. I think, uh, I think in my own life, I have not truly appreciated and valued what Christ will do for us at the second coming. I wouldn't say I've overvalued the first coming because I don't think it's possible to overvalue what Christ has accomplished, but I don't think I've prized and meditated enough on what Christ will accomplish when he returns. Because at his return, that is when the kingdom of God will be fully consummated. He will return in full, unmitigated power and glory and might. The dead in Christ will be raised, and those who are in Christ still alive will be joined with them, and, and we will finally be perfected. The process and aim of sanctification will, in that moment, be complete. We will be healed and made whole, perfected in body, mind, and spirit. We will be freed from the toils and burdens of sinful flesh, the pains of a body broken by time and sickness, and in its place we will receive glorified resurrection bodies like our Savior's, permanently free from sin and pain and death. And it's also at his return that all wrongs will be made right. Justice will replace injustice. Peace will replace chaos. Righteousness will overcome wickedness. The people of God will be vindicated. The wrath of God will be poured out on the wicked, but those who are in Christ will be spared because they're covered by the righteousness of Christ. We'll receive our reward for deeds done in righteousness. And as Paul told us in Timothy, we'll receive the crown of righteousness from Jesus himself. All that is wrapped up in the second coming, in the second appearing, and that is our blessed hope. That's what we're waiting for. But according to what Paul says here, that waiting is not a passive waiting. We're not sitting at a bus stop waiting to get picked up. It's a very active waiting. As the second appearing motivates godly living now in the present age because we want to be ready, because we want to be found faithful, and most of all, because we love our Savior. We love him for what he's done for us, and that love compels us to obedience 
And in case there's any doubt why we should love Jesus, Paul gives this amazing doxology in verse 14. Look at how he describes Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Every word and phrase of that matters. Paul says Jesus gave himself. Let me ask you, what kind of God gives of himself? You can search out all the world religions and you will find a constant theme of a God or God's doing nothing but requiring people to give of themselves to the God. They want sacrifices, offerings, deeds done in allegiance. You'll be hard-pressed to find any idea of a God or God's freely giving of themselves. But the God of the Bible is so very different. From the very beginning, God has been freely giving of himself. He creates humanity in his image. He places something unique in them. He gives the first man and woman dominion and authority over his perfect creation. And he does so freely out of his goodness. And we see that continue all the way until Jesus, which again, the first coming, the incarnation, is another example of God giving of himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus, the son, picks up right where the father left off as he too gives of himself. When we think of Jesus as our savior, nothing captures the title of savior more than him giving of himself. And Paul picks up on this often, like Galatians 1.4, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Galatians 2.20, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And Paul loves to emphasize that our Savior gave himself for us. But when he speaks of Jesus giving himself, he is clearly speaking of Jesus giving his life on the cross. No one forced Jesus to do it. No one strong-armed him. As he himself said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He freely and willingly went to the cross and there gave his life for us. What does that tell us about our Savior? What kind of God is this? This is a God of unfathomable mercy and grace. This is a God, a God of incomparable love and kindness. This is a God who is infinitely worthy of our praise, our love, our complete obedience and devotion. And he gave himself for us to do two things. First, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness could also be translated wickedness. It's the exact opposite, the antithesis of righteousness. And Jesus gave himself to redeem us from wickedness. The word redeem is such a vivid word picture. The Greek word there means to purchase someone out of bondage. It's a ransom. In that ancient setting, someone could redeem a slave. They could set a slave free by paying a price for them. They could purchase their freedom. That's exactly how it describes Christ redeeming us from wickedness. The Bible describes us 
before Christ as being slaves to sin. We're in bondage to it. It's a cruel master. It controls us, it owns us, and the wages of sin is death. Sin can only lead to death and destruction. And there's only one person that can meet the price required for our freedom. No amount of money could do it. No amount of good deeds and favor could cover it. Only the life of the perfect son of God could purchase our freedom from slavery to sin. So Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. He set us free. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his father. And then the second reason he gave himself was to purify a people for himself. Purify is also a strong word. It means to cleanse something. In that setting, someone might purify a vessel, which meant not just removing the filth, but also rendering it fit for use. When Jesus went to the cross, he gave himself not only to redeem us, but also to purify us, to wash us clean from our stain of sin. But he doesn't just leave us washed clean like we're a blank slate. Instead, he washes us clean and makes us holy. He makes us fit to become part of the family, to be used by him, to be brought to the Father. That's why it says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus gives himself not only to save you, but to bring you into the family, to be able to present you to God. Colossians 1.21 echoes this saying, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That verse perfectly sums up why Jesus had to redeem us and purify us. In our sinful state, we could not come before a holy God. Our sin deserved nothing but judgment, nothing but punishment. Our sin causes a great separation between us and God. We're filthy, we're unworthy of him, but now Jesus has brought reconciliation into the relationship. We're no longer enemies of God. We can now be brought before him because Christ has purified us. And if you want an illustration of this, it'd be like Jesus pulling us out of the gutter, picking us up off the street in all of our filth. He, he takes us, he removes our old, nasty, filthy clothes and throws them away. And in their place, gives us nice, clean, fresh clothes. Now we're purified, but he doesn't stop there. He then brings us home. He presents us to God the Father and says, Father, this person is now part of the family. He's your son. He's my brother. She's your daughter. She's my sister. We're brought into the family of God, and Jesus gave himself to purify you as a people for his own possession. He doesn't just save you and leave you alone. You now belong to him. And he loves you. He cares for you. He provides for you. And he's creating a people for himself. It's restoration of God's intent from the garden, where in the beginning, the first man and first woman enjoyed this perfect harmony in the relationship with God. They were his people, and he was their God until sin broke that harmony. But through Christ, he's restoring it. He's creating a people for himself to be his people, his chosen ones loved and called by him. That's why Jesus gave of himself to redeem us, to purify us. And notice what effect this redeeming and purifying should have. He says, 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Those who are redeemed, those who are purified should be zealous for good works. That is to be eager, to be enthusiastic, to serve the Lord and obey him and live out our faith. So do you see how all this fits together? Paul has already given Titus the instructions for how different groups within the church are to live. He told Titus how women and men are to live according to sound doctrine. And here he's giving the theological basis for it. And we find that Christians are not meant to live a certain way just because we're supposed to follow a certain set of rules and commands. The Bible doesn't portray the Christian life as as one of begrudging obedience to a set of rules, whether we like it or not. Instead, like Paul, it shows that those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and set free from sin are brought into the family of God. Those people should have a fire burning in them for God. They should be eager to shine the light of Jesus by doing good works. They look back at his first coming and what Jesus accomplished on the cross in the power of his grace for godliness. And then they look, hopefully, to the future coming and and how it motivates further godliness because they want to show themselves as workmen approved, as faithful servants when their Savior returns. So let me ask you, are you zealous for good works? Well, you might ask, what is a good work? A good work is almost as broad and general as it sounds. Good works are anything done for the glory of God according to his commands. It's living out God's word, God's way. So with that definition, are you zealous for good works? Do you desire actively to glorify God in your life? According to Paul here, that's one of the reasons Jesus gave his life for you, to make you a person zealous for good works. If you think you're lacking that zeal, then here's what I want you to do this week. This is what I want all of us to do this week. Take time to meditate on Jesus' first appearing and his second appearing. That's the source of our power and the source of our hope. Really set aside time to think on it. Maybe write a list on one side, write everything that Jesus' first appearing means. And then on the other side, write everything that Jesus' second appearing will mean. Ask God to fill your heart with awe and wonder that he sent his son to bring salvation and that Jesus gave his life to redeem you from the bondage of sin. He gave his perfect life to save you. Ask God to fill your heart with hope and longing for his return. Stir up in your soul a burning affection for your Savior and and a desire to honor him with a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. In faith, pray for that zeal for good works, and then be ready, because that's a prayer that God will answer every time. Will you pray with me?